everyone. I'm super excited to have David Lazar on the pod today. David Lazar needs no introduction, but here at LazyPod, ladies and gentlemen, we're polite, so he's going to get one anyway. David is a university distinguished professor of political science and computer sciences at Northeastern University and a co-director at the New Lab for Text Maps and Networks. Prior to coming to Northeastern, he was on the faculty of the Harvard Kennedy School, and in 2019, he was elected as a fellow to the National Academy of Public Administration. And he's no slouch when it comes to publications. His research has been published in journals such as Science, Nature, PNAS, the American Political Science Review, Organizational Science, and not to forget the Administrative Science Quarterly. And he has also, beyond the kind of the publications, he's received extensive coverage in the media, including New York Times, NPR, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and CBS Evening News. Why is all this happening? Well, it's because David is among the leading scholars in the world on misinformation and computational social science, and that he's served in many leadership and editorial positions. As always, in the pod today, we talk about David's path through science uh, with a particular emphasis, because I'm super interested in that, on computational social science and the history of that field. Uh, and this is a field that David has been absolutely instrumental in establishing. But we also cover uh, many other topics in uh, what I like to call a wide-ranging conversation. And we end up covering his paper, because this is the Too Lazy to Read the Paper podcast, after all, uh, the paper Product Diffusion Through On-Demand Information-Seeking Behavior. And this is one of David's favorite papers. It's also one of the least cited. And as you will hear, it has a super interesting backstory. But enough jibber-jabber. Let's get to the show. Dave Lazar, welcome to uh, the podcast Too Lazy to Read the Paper. I'm uh, I'm ecstatic that we found such a distinguished uh, guest. So so good to have you. So it's great uh, great to be here with you. Excellent. And I mean, really, it's just you indulging uh, like an old uh, postdoc <laughs> <laughs> to spend an hour on this uh, not extremely popular uh, podcast. But I will say that among the the hundreds of people uh, who listen, maybe thousands sometimes. Uh, people like it, so it's it's very narrow and very nerdy. But uh, but I I get a lot of joy out of uh, recording it and getting to to ask you and people like you who I admire uh, personal questions about uh, who they are and about the science. But but if you don't, if you will allow me, I want to because I met you back in I still remember in your office at Harvard. You gave me a sweatshirt which I still have and cherish. Um, <laughs> somewhere around 2009 and you were already like super fancy and uh, grown up and, and everything. So I can't even imagine you as a young person, but once upon a time, you, you didn't know that you wanted to be a scientist. You're just figuring out things, right? So, so how did you get started on all this? Well, you know, there, there's in some sense, uh, Maybe I always knew. I, 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 my parents were academics. Uh, my dad was a political scientist, and my mother, uh, an economist. 
and um, and I got dragged around the world for my mother's field work, which was involved studying um, at the time um, public private division and education in countries with mountain ranges that she wanted to hike in. Uh, nice. Like <laughs> so, um, so I actually spent some time in Copenhagen. I think, uh, although no no mountain ranges there, but lovely city. No. <laughs> uh, uh, but. But um, but there's a way in which um, in which you know this was a a, a, a sort of a, a a lifestyle and orientation that that I learned very early. Um, of course, my kids said they would never want to go into this uh, kind of area. So you know, I guess it doesn't always pass from one generation to the next. But um, there's no, a way in which this was the you know the in for better or for worse the family business um, as I grew up. So. Yeah, it makes sense. It 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 makes it makes a lot of sense. But but how how long would you stay away? Would it what are these kind of a year or three weeks or what kind of trips are these? Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh it was you know, it'd be usually on the order of months. Uh once it was over a year, uh I, I missed eighth grade and I survived. <laughs> um yeah. uh but you know, I I I I as I was that year, you know pulled around i think we, we my mother did uh, work on and she was on sabbatical and so she was studying india sri lanka israel was where we spent most of the year and then a scattering of other countries and then other times we just spend like three months in stockholm or a few months in london or um or um uh what have you so um so it was it was uh there were good chunks of time it, yeah, was, yeah. it was unusual but it's it's fascinating to me who is someone who does not come from a an academic family and you know like I needed I needed the school in a way right like I and so so it must have also been that you were in an environment that was somehow lifting you up and making it possible not to do eighth grade because you were already reading maybe different books then um yeah I think you know and it just may be um you know, my I think it would have been more harmful if it was eleventh grade. Say, um, I think that um, you know a lot of uh, a lot of stuff isn't that cumulative in middle school, and so that was um, that was sort of how how it managed to work. Although algebra two was a lot tougher uh, without algebra one, um, but um, but other than that, other than math, um, it turns out that certainly in the U.S., a lot of these subjects are taught in a sort of non non cumulative kind of way. Uh, but like Ben, I learned, you know, different things, um, you know, like it wasn't something I was I was honestly that keen on, say, as a teenager to be right. uh, dragged away uh, from friends and home uh, for extended periods of time. But, you know, I it, it certainly broadened, broadened my horizons. So Sure. But what about then when it comes to deciding what to do? I, I mean, I, you have like a pretty incredible pedigree if you look at where you went to uh, undergrad and and where you worked and so on so when did you kind of, so so i guess part of it is you know like when you're a kid you just, you just kind of do the work and you understand what's expected of you but when did it start to like fire up some kind of passion in you where you go like okay oh, hang, hang on a minute like this this is not just hard work it's also awesome or like what what kind of books were you reading to drag you in to, to get you excited about this um, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, when I was in college um, and um, and I was taking um, 
classes, there's definitely a lot of the political science classes that really um, got me excited to think that you could look at these questions, these topics in a in a rigorous way that 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 you know wasn't wasn't certainly I mean I it wasn't really how I was looking at it even as a kid of academics uh, as as a as a kid um, and it's not something you take classes on or it wasn't like how social studies is taught and so on so there's a way in which I I was interested in these topics um, um, in pol- politics and economics and stuff when I was you know relatively young, but I, I definitely developed more enthusiasm when I was in college. And then honestly, first year of grad school was transformative for me because like that's when I really, you know, got to dive deep into literatures and think about like knowledge creation as a thing I could do. Um, and uh, and for me, it was really that first year of graduate school that um, that was more transformative than than anything. Uh, you know, until then, it was sort of like, ah, it's interesting, something I could try to do. Um, and um, and you'll certainly send me in the right direction. And and um, but really, after that first year, I was really quite quite excited about the whole endeavor in a way I hadn't been before. Yeah. And so this this is at Michigan yes. and you studied political science, right? Yeah, I got my PhD in political science from uh from uh, U of M. So Yes. And and I mean, you know that I'm a kind of just a barbarian uh and so I don't, <laughs> I don't really know anything. I still I still went just uh, on a side note. I'm still embarrassed about like some of our first conversations just because of like the sensitivity I have now around um political science and and the increased level of understanding and understanding what I didn't know then and I could still think and cringe about stuff I've said but it but anyway you were very uh, gracious and and I don't have any memories of anything that you could have been cringing at. I'm glad I'm I'm excited I'm excited uh to hear that I there's well I'll sleep better tonight and but (laughs) but so so anyways (laughs) Michigan (laughs) uh so so Michigan is is a really great place for political science so like i'm just curious because my whole world is just you know uh studying physics and and so so what happens at that year right so 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 it somehow like the thing the thing when it starts working i think this is true for many people is when you get a sense that you can make a difference also right that you're not just kind of passively reading the books but you get a sense like wait a minute i can also write something or make a difference so so can you do you have like examples or stories of this well i think um it's an interesting question i think you know there are distinct points in my life and my career where uh you know i I thought maybe i i could make a difference in in a way that's that's distinctive and value added um i'm not sure my first year i knew the thing i just knew um um, I, I just knew, you know, mainly I was sort of absorbing literatures um, and I felt like I was seeing things that I couldn't see. Uh, but I, I wasn't sure where where my contribution could be. Um, and in some sense, that came rather later in graduate school. I went to the Santa Fe Institute summer school. Um, right. And, uh, you know, my advisor and I was very lucky, you know, that um, that. Um, that there was a set of people 
at the University of Michigan at the time, um, including my advisor, Bob Axelrod, who who were really, you know, looking at social systems as complex things and were really pushing that notion of complexity yeah. forward yeah. in the social sciences. And that that was that resonated with me in a very deep way. I mean, like I was I was actually um um, in 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 college, I was actually not a political science major. I was an economics major. I took a lot of political science classes. Uh, I also took. I was I was very close to being a cognitive a psych uh, major as well. Um, but the the things that bothered me about there were things that really bothered me about economics and psychology uh, in terms of how they looked at people. Uh, I think that um, economics looked at sort of you know they basically abstracted away from anything at the time economics has changed but like just what what yeah. you know the aggregation mechanism was all through this through the market and and prices sort of seamlessly passing from sellers to buyers uh and so on and it was a very to me uh impoverished model of aggregation of how you go to many uh what's the properties of the collective um in psychology or certainly cognitive uh, science at the time was very much focused, you know, like the world ended at the skull, and that uh, it was very much understanding like how the how an individual's mind worked, and it wasn't so much about how sets of individuals are connected to each other, like the social dimensions of cognition, and so that those are both paradigms that felt unsatisfying to me. Uh, political science, at least, was explicitly worried about like how do we think about how societies go from from one to many and how to solve those collective. Uh, uh, issues, but even political science had a lot of issues with, um, with, in my view, uh, you know, and it wasn't so apparent to me when I entered uh, a graduate school, but especially uh, the paradigm around public opinion really focused on, um, on, an IID, independently identically distributed, yeah. that somehow we're all independent uh, entities, even though that was understood that that was uh, that you know that we are social beings that 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 wasn't really properly handled, I think, by the discipline at the time. And so the paradigms of complexity um, were really quite appealing to me. And uh, then I went to the Santa the second Santa Fe Institute summer school um, in ninety um, one, I believe, um, and. You know, there were just a bunch of crazy people floating around. Yeah, there, yeah. Farmer, there was uh, Stuart Kaufman. Uh, I had my the, for my first publication was a group publication, a chapter in the in an edited volume that I think nobody has read, but was actually quite useful to me to to think about you know evolutionary ideas and they they might apply to collective problem solving in various kinds of ways. Actually, ironically, I I then that planted a seed for a paper I wrote years later on exploration and exploitation. Um, but, um, you know, that was a moment where I'm like, oh, there's sort of this, these set of concepts that have been, that really could be transformative um, to studying uh, social systems and political systems. Um, and um, and actually my dissertation sort of built on those ideas. Um, so that, that was, I think, I, I think it was uh, in many ways attending the SFI uh, summer program, but also the fact that that reflected that I was sitting in a an intellectual corner of, of the University of Michigan that was uh, very helpful in pushing pushing my thinking along in that way in a way that was, you know, there were seeds for me before, but it was more like 
discomfort rather than uh like here's where i could go um and um and so that that was sort of like the first moment where i felt like there's stuff i can do uh, especially around networks and so on that um that um that's really underutilized it wasn't like there was zero in the social science it's not like there was zero in political science but it was extremely scarce especially within the study of politics yes this is in like a super interesting story right because what you're also saying here is that like somehow when i look at your career from now it's very clear there's like this through line to say like you you studied economics you were searching in that area and it's something that still has influenced i think a lot of the thinking today even the cognitive science is also kind of you could kind of you can see the outline of a lot of things in those early choices. Then you get to political science and and yeah and and there was a there is exactly this complexity uh tradition also at Michigan that 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 has like some kind of Venn diagram with with Axelrod who was your advisor and and so you are, must have also found him, right? This is also kind of a directed thing. So Yes, how, no, I mean I I I found him. Uh, honestly, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't heard of him. Uh, this reflects my own ignorance before I went to grad school. Of course, you know, the availability of information, like yeah. being a prospective grad student circa 1988 was a very different thing than yes. it is today, where, of course, it's very easy to study who is there and so on. But I just knew U- University of Michigan is a great institution, very good at, at let's say, quantitative methodology and so on. Um, uh, but I didn't know anything more. And then I, I took, uh, there was a required class on modeling that he taught. I'm like, oh, this is this is great. And um, And he, after some some degree of negotiation agreed to be my uh, advisor, and that was uh, very helpful. And then also Cohen, there's a group called the Bach Group, uh, mm-hmm. Bernstein, yeah. Axelrod, Cohen, and Holland. Um, and uh, A was Axelrod. And um, and I never met Bernstein, uh, but Cohen was on my committee. Uh, and Holland was, I actually didn't meet at Michigan, but I had him out to Harvard uh, uh, yeah. to give a talk and had delightful interactions with him then. Uh, years later, um, and and uh, and and they were all involved in sort of the complexity stuff, and also Cohen was very involved in the formation of the Information School of Information at Michigan. Um, so um, these were really important intellectual figures, and they sort of built. This is one of those things, and it's one of those things I've sort of been, I've tried to be sensitive to as uh, as um, and as a, a more senior scholar. It's like, how do you create pathways um to enable others who want to go that way and so i think that um uh, you know because like if i was just sort of totally isolated and in certain times i certainly did feel isolated because like even though that it's great to have all of that it's not like that it's not like that it wasn't like a huge niche uh at michigan even right it wasn't uh, at that time i think it's it's certainly gotten much larger because michigan built on that um and it's not like in these these folks are also pretty famous, so it's not like I was knocking on Axelrod's door every day. Um, there were a few students, um, um, like Lars Eric Sederman, who I'm so close friends with. It was it, it, in the program at the time, so there were like oftentimes you see this stuff percolating at the bottom, and there need to get at least a minimal amount of sustenance from yeah. uh, from the yeah. institutions and from senior scholars, and and uh, and that was, you know, that was all um, essential really in in moving forward. 
Yes, no, no, it makes it it makes a lot of sense. And and I, I you had like a throwaway comment to say that you you found Axelrod as an advisor after some negotiation. I, <laughs> I think you said so. So is there like a story there? Or is it just that you had to be tenacious or? Well, uh, you know, he agreed. You know, the way things worked at Michigan at the time. I mean, Axelrod was was you know a very uh, uh, storied faculty member uh, at the time, and I think was um, you know very uh, very careful uh, at guarding his time. There were a lot of there were a lot of graduate students, um, and so um, um, you know, like my cohort was thirty five or so. Um, and, um, and so like literally there are hundreds of grad students floating around. Um, and so he, he, um, you know, I think he was, um, picky and guarding his time and so on. So he, uh, so when he agreed, so the, the way it worked at the time is that you would take these oral exams called prelims, you, you put your own committees together, uh, and, and generally, you know, you asked someone to be on your committee and they would agree to be on your committee. Uh, and I asked Axrod to chair my committee and he's like, well, you know, just so you understand, just because I'm agreeing to chair your major qualifying exam, your major qual- prelim does not mean I'm agreeing to chair your dissertation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I did very well on the qualifying exam on the oral exam. And he, he was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll share your dissertation. Um, so, you know, I think I had to go through a, a, a certain hurdle to, you know, indicate at least a certain minimum level of intellectual competence above just, you know, the minimum level of yeah. passing. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, at that point he, he agreed, uh, happily and, um, and, you know, that, that was important in setting in motion other things. Yeah, yeah, because I, I have to, I have to say, like one of the questions I have written down is that, and you've kind of already begun answering it. I have to say, so, uh, so it's very nice. But I, I had to, say, like, I wrote down that you're kind of an insane first mover in a way, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> in that you were way, way, way ahead, and I think that, um, you know, the in the in the kind of growing of complexity i think a lot of people from the physics community who were very comfortable with complexity and very comfortable with the math of the networks saw the work on networks and began moving and there are like a few kind of from the other side like watts i thought like watts was kind of the opposite of you that he came from the physics side and and went over to the uh sociology in a very serious way but what is really incredible about you is that you kind of anticipated something that's only just now beginning to really come to fruition, which is like a, a move from the social science side to towards embracing these methods. Yes. And so I, I just thought that it was kind of incredible. <laughs> but but now that you told the story about the economics and the thing and the and the and the summer school, it begins to make sense. But but I still want to ask. Like, you know, when did you begin to see, hang on a minute, there is something here in these new data sources in the network thinking that can potentially transform the social sciences in a new way? Like, when did that idea begin to grow kind of more seriously? Yeah, that was in later years. So, like, you know, I was doing a lot of network stuff, um, and I think the the most network research probably most um was reliant mostly on was mostly small scale 
networks on the social science side yeah. with small scale one shot networks and so on um all of which i think is important and still has actually its place and it's actually worked some of which i'm um engaged with still um but um but you know it's clear that that our that every time we like this is an interaction right and we're gonna there's certain content flowing between us and it's it's time encapsulated and then i'm gonna have a meeting with a couple other people after this and there's a certain kind of sequence and granularity and things that are happening in the tie and so on and of course everyone who studied networks before this like would say yeah that's that's all doable but then we go back to our surveys and say here's a list of names and check off which names that you're friends with or something like that yeah um yeah. and that uh, that even things that are like happening like this are essentially impossible to measure uh but um but um it did it did become you know apparent to me especially as i intersected with people out, sort of outside of the social sciences and and here um you know important figures include actually um uh sandy pentland and leslie barabashi um who i was interacting with in various ways in the in the aughts um early aughts uh or early mid aughts really uh mm -hmm. about wow. like digital trace data and i was like oh this is this this isn't about a paper there's like a bigger transformation um that that's gonna take place right i mean in, in, mm -hmm. and and like that's where that's where i want to be uh but also it's where the social sciences should be and we need to think about how to how about how to facilitate that movement um and um and so, you know, there were a few papers I was working on. Actually, one, you know, that that the paper with that that Yuka Pekka led that involved um, mobile phone data and looking at the network of uh, an entire country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was one of the authors on that. But then another one that with that involved um, Nathan Eagle and Sandy Pentland. Um, they that then they appeared a couple of years apart, one in 07 or '09. But in, in some ways, in working through those papers, I was thinking, boy, there's. This, it's not just about, let's say, cell phone data, but it's about like all these other things that are are being captured incidentally, uh, in some ways quite scary and uh, insidious. Uh, but like from a scientific point of view, from a societal point of view, there's a whole set of things that have to be wrestled with. Um, but then there's a whole other intersecting set of things that have to be wrestled with on the research side about um about both the the opportunities to create knowledge as well as well as the ethics about how to do that um and um and so that's in motion a set of conversations uh about the emergence of a computational social science um we had uh, um and then we had a a conference in at harvard at the institute for quantitative social science in 2007 actually you can see some of the some of the videos up on um uh vimeo uh still nice. uh, that um that had an array of of people um and um and then resulted in in the paper in science two years later same the speakers all were co-authors the point there was to make a sort of a a statement about from uh that that would be noticed um about um about this paradigm paradigmatic opportunity um and uh, and to have a, an array of people who could help 
focus attention on this. And so in that sense, it was a way of like trying to flip the levers of the of the institutions within the academy to say, oh, my gosh, this is important. And yeah, where yeah. people are living their lives. It both creates digital traces and creates scientific opportunities. But then there are all these sets of ethical issues and so on. And so trying to set the paradigm. Um, and I think actually that paper is held up well, even in terms of some of the problems that occurred in in uh, in in following years. Um, but uh, but that was it was probably like, you know, oh, four or five oh six that where it's like really clicking that, boy, things are changing. Social science are going to be changing. And this is where I want to this is where I want to make my mark. Yeah. Yeah. And but so. Uh... I want to come back to this kind of landmark paper, but before we get there, but then you mentioned uh, Laszlo Barbashi and Sandy Pentland. So how how did you even come across those 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 guys? Good question. Um, well, a few a few ways, right? So um, I, I I I mentioned my friend Lars Eric Satterman uh, uh, a few minutes ago, who I went to Michigan with. Well, he actually was a colleague of mine at Harvard for a few years, and we put together this colloquium series, uh, the Cambridge Colloquium on Complexity and Social Networks. And I don't know it, whether any traces of that remain, but we had um, we had a you know, we 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 had an array of like um, incredible speakers uh, on a monthly basis for several years, um, and one of the speakers we had was Laszlo, um, mm -hmm. um, and um, and so we had Laszlo out talking about his uh, book um, that had just come out, um, and um, and you know we we had a lovely dinner and we talked and so on, and then like I don't know. A year later or so, um, he reached out to me and said, you know, we have we're working on this paper um, and, you know, we really want a, a, a social scientist to help inform um, the research. Uh, would you be willing to come on board? I'm like, yeah, this sounds really interesting. Um, and so is in that way, interestingly, I think there were, you know, there were a lot of people that, that you know, and this is one of the things I've. I've rec I've recommended to junior colleagues of mine. It's like, well, if you can play host to a seminar series, it's a way, you know, in you know, invite the people who you who are the interesting people in your field because it's good. Only good things happen, right? This is you yeah, know, practice yeah. practice what you study, right? Build your networks, but like get to make sure you meet interesting people, um, and especially interesting people from outside your discipline because like there are more opportunities within your discipline um but uh laszlo is not someone i was ever going to cross paths with uh, otherwise and so i was like well um i'll you know i'll we'll invite him out here you know crazy yeah. physicist who's working on networks <laughs> and, and um and i think that it ended up creating a, a great intellectual opportunity for me and a great paper um yeah. so and with sandy it was a little different because um i was teaching that was geography played a key role there um i was teaching a course on social networks at harvard at the kennedy school for a series of years um and um i had had a, a number of his students uh, somehow discovered my class. Uh, so I had a number of Sandy students and that led to one thing or another. And we had right. uh, coffee and we met and, and then we had uh, uh, Nathan Eagle, who's like, well, let me talk to you about this sort of 
this data collection? Should we do a, do a survey and you want to connect, build the bridge between, you know, old school and new school data and so on? That Out of that came the 09 PNAS paper. But like it was in part he and I talking, but then, of course, the role of students as bridging uh, faculty um, and the fact that we were in the same city just made it easy for students to take to take my class. And and there weren't a lot of network classes floating around at the time. So um, so uh, I think that was, um, you know, there was serendipity fueled by uh, geographic proximity. Yeah. And it's so wild, right? Like if you think about it, that they they kind of built this incredible data set that has, I, I mean, it's really just like the sociologist dream and they did it for the love of technology right yeah and then you, <laughs> you got to be the lucky social scientist that came in and said hey wait a minute people um because because in a in a way like if you think of their motivations of course like they have their kind of you know like I'm, you know, like I went to Nathan's apartment one time and he lives, you know, like has the penthouse in, in a skyscraper or something like that. Um, and, and, uh, you know, like there is a benefit <laughs> to the love yes. of technology. And that's what the Googles of the world also build these kinds of things. But, but in a way, again, like you saw this technology also has a use as a kind of fundamental data source in understanding human beings. And, and I think, that connection is really truly serendipitous. I think it's it's really nice, and I just I want to take a small sidebar because a lot of students listen to this, and and I think that your comments also around organizing stuff, going to talks, and so on. That we live in this world, everyone is overwhelmed, even the students. Yeah. You have to keep up with social media. You have to keep up with this stuff, and and you're overwhelmed. But I I think that if you don't go to talks, if you don't take the time to organize symposia and you're being quote unquote efficient and working at your computer. But in fact, maybe you're also checking uh, some social media, whatever. Like I'm not, now no, I'm just old man preaching. Sorry, everyone. But, but I'm just saying those interactions are so important and have also yeah. been super important to me over time. And it, it's just, it seems like time wasted, but there is a reason why this uh, is a tradition that, happens in academia right and i think it's you bring it out that very important connections and i want to say also of course <laughs> if you can have a class that's so cool that all the cool um, mit yeah. engineering students come over that's also a trick but that's definitely harder to pull off than uh <laughs> than inviting i had some amazing students in that class over the years uh because like it was uh, this mix of like some tech types and then you'd have the people from the policy world at the kennedy school and then you'd have people come over from the business school and we had um you know sometimes literally it was hard to uh hard to kick the students out of the classroom so uh it just happened to be you know a, a great class um um, and um, and 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 create these great great exchanges, and so it was it was, it was itself a, a wonderful intellectual experience. But also then it built helped build the networks. And I, I think you're right that that we have to balance. Right, you can't spend all of your time going to symposia and colloquia and conferences and so on. Uh, but uh, but you should you definitely have to spend some of your time, and you definitely want to spend some of your time, especially early in your career forcing yourself outside of your box to broaden your horizons and figure out like what's your novel array of ideas and tools and approaches where you can do something special. Um, and, um, and that's, you know, that's how I ended up 
and, and you know i i came out like of you know I, I you know i i was you know i could you know i learned how to code in well actually going back to high school but then in college was doing you know lisp and in, interested in ai but then doing simulation stuff in in yeah. grad school yeah. but then interested in stuff that's you know well beyond my abilities um um uh, you know after that uh, but like then having enough knowledge to intersect and connect with people who have who have compl- I had I was putting a lot on the table with thinking about social systems and and things like also methods from the social sciences, but then fusing that together with some of the new opportunities that could be um, that 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 could be harnessed, whether it's you know looking at social media or phones or uh, other things. Um, that that it's really a new fusion in a way. And so that, but like it's it's represented by connecting with people who can do stuff and think about things in way that ways that you cannot. Yes, no, I think I think it's very true, and I think it's like a kind of the the thing I had is it's like a kind of high risk, high reward use yeah. of your time, right? That that you will go to nine talks that are just boring, but then number ten might change your life or change the direction of your research at least or something, and that's how you can only like this is the the best way of finding it. But anyway. I need to. I, we we we're spending time. It's super fun, but I want to. I want to move on. So so in two thousand and nine, I think at Science, you wrote this, or you led this landmark paper where you basically say there is an incredible opportunity here, and I agree that this paper has held up super well. And so, and so I, I had like a joke question, which you kind of spoiled, which, which was gonna. I was gonna ask like, how did you get this list of authors together? Because I. <laughs> I wrote it down here and it's just incredible. It says, you know, uh, Dave Lazar, Alex Pendlin, Lada Damich, Sinana Rao, Laszlo Barbashi, Devin Brewer, Nicholas Christakis, Nashir Contract, and the list just goes on. James Fowler is next. Like I could I could just name like huge names. And and it reminded me of like the intro to Austin Powers 3 when it's like the you know, like the joke is like Tom Cruise comes in and then Gwyneth Paltrow and then like they, they and I'm like, how do you how do you get that many famous people in for something uh, like this? Um, and you kind of answered, but let me still pose it as a question because it's pretty pretty good uh, author list there. Yeah, well, I think that um, I think I was fortunate to be at Harvard at the time. Uh, I was fortunate that IQSS was willing to support a conference, uh, and um, and you know the notion of having. A conference, going to a conference at, at Harvard on a cutting edge thing uh, with a lot of other interesting people is actually a pretty attractive proposition um, to um, uh, to uh, to to even you know prominent faculty. And of course, these are these were all people who were thinking very creatively about um, about opportunities, intellectual opportunities. So these were all people you know very sympathetic to the possibilities and. Um, and so, you know, we had this conference and then um, and um, I think there were a lot of good ideas flowing out of it. And, you know, and and uh, and then I reached out to science. I was like, is this some, you know, is a statement like this potentially of interest? And the answer is yes. But then there was, a, you know, it was obviously a little bit more complicated than that. Yep. Um, and um, and um, and, you know, the people who spoke were definitely game to have a statement like this in science, unsurprisingly. But like step one was having this conference for them all to interact. It was a very it was a 
it was a very exciting moment uh, in that conference because it was every. I think everyone thought it was fantastic that there's something special going on here, um, and um, and so I think it was that element of, you know, of somehow having having a party that nobody wanted to miss, um, and um, and I think that was it, it was a it was an exciting. Uh, exciting event, and I think everyone saw the possibilities there. So there was that synthesis that emerged in the moment, in a way. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was kind of, I, I was around also for that time, and I just, I just remember going to see talks, and like another author is Deb Roy, and I remember going to see how he had back then, like put, I don't know how many cameras and microphones in yes. his house, and then documented, you know, like the birth of his uh, first child. And then mapped out like how they learned to speak and just being like, what, what, how, and it was just, yeah, yeah, no, it's just, it was, it was, it was mind blowing, right? Like the idea of being able to capture almost every, the majority of the utterances of his child for the first few years of, um, I think his life. Uh, it was just, to, you know, and being able to track, well, here's how he said ball. Like I remember the, the presentation yeah. and you could see the, the advance ball, 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 ball 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 but like that was like over months of time of that this progress like whoa um and of course the notion that like you know we're just at the cusp of this because like what's going to be possible to do in a decade from now and the answer is a lot more than we can at circa 20 to you know 2007 say um and um and so that's um um i think that was um you know that was certainly eye-opening and like just one of many examples so yeah exactly no, no it was just it popped out because that was one of the the talks that i <laughs> i went to at that time but there was so much stuff going on but but then as you also mentioned you said this has held up pretty well and i completely agree that it's held pretty well and i think part of it is is because you wrote it and you come from a kind of let's say social science tradition where a little bit more conservative with the claims and a little bit <laughs> kind of understanding of the difficulty of building, let's say, a quantitative understanding of human behavior. And I think that um, like a while ago, someone asked me to come to a summer school in a very nice uh, place and talk about computational social science or social data science or something with that title. And I, and, and I, since I was lecturing, I wanted to not just talk about my own stuff, but kind of put it in perspective. And it's very nice to open with that paper and then move through the period and then end. And you wrote a kind of follow-up paper recently where you talk about some of the lessons that we learned in the, in the interim. And I, and I think that that movement is also really powerful and interesting to, to see, right? No, absolutely. And I do think that, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a process in part because it is a multidisciplinary effort, um, and with you know, with people with very different sensibilities in terms of like, what does even the word friend mean, right? Yeah. Um, and um, and and I think things have moved in the right direction. I don't think that they're you know where they need to be, but I also I think the notion that that like that. Uh, you know how to work between between the digital trace elements and like what's the sociological or social scientific meaning of 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 a thing right like like a, a friend a friend isn't someone that you just have a phone call to right but like i think that that um that 
um, that working between between these things is something that has has made some real progress. We also had a paper; a group of us had a paper in um, Nature last year about meaningful measures. And yeah, that's the one I was thinking about as the the recent. That's the one I kind of ended on um, yes. because I think it's so nice that that yeah they they almost bookend kind of a an important evolution. And and I guess my point on this. I mean, I, I realized I didn't ask you a question before, but just kind of yeah. ended a statement. So, I'm, uh, but I, I hope that you could <laughs> you could join in. But my take on it is a little bit that you were also because so so there was a lot of promise back then, rightfully so, but there was also a kind of we have all this new data, maybe it's going to solve all our problems. And what we found is that no, actually, a lot of the problems remain. Some yeah. are solved, but new ones uh, come about. And there has been this kind of process of of learning that to say, well, we can't just take a network and say, now this is the entire universe like we used to do in the old days. I mean, we yeah. can't still do to some degree, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we have to say, well, actually, this is a this is a bit of a bigger network, right? And and some of the work that I did was to say, what if we got like way better data and we got all the layers of the network or yeah. whatever? And and so 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 there's just been this kind of development where we basically realize that we're running into a lot of the problems that the social sciences have been running into for hundreds of years. And and a lot of doing good computational social science is just kind of being aware of all of these issues. And and I think that that also gave you a kind of first mover advantage even on that, that front because you were one of the only people that came from the kind of core social science into That's this. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, a barbarian physicist such as myself, <laughs> and only, I'm only speaking for me here, but I, <laughs> I was maybe more optimistic and then uh, have gradually uh, learned this, right? And I think that we're in a great place now where the standards are just growing year by year in terms of open data, in terms of understanding biases, like all these things, it's really, you can't just get away with what you could get away with. And it's a really, yeah. it's a really exciting and good thing. Yeah, I think I think our standards have improved. I think uh, standards in science just generally have improved. Um, although sometimes it feels like we're we're learning we know less each year uh, than we thought we did. But like that, if we, it's better to know that than to not. And so I think, uh, but I do think that part part of what part of what we were emphasizing in that original paper is, you know, one of the things that good computational social science has to be is good social science. Yes. Um, and I think that that ha hasn't always been, you know, the case. And so I think, um, and it also has to be good on the computational side, of course. Uh, but I think that there was, there have at times been a lot more stuff work going on the computational side than thinking about what would be good social science. And so I think we are, I think we have moved a lot towards a, a much better synthesis uh, in the, geez, 15 years since we had that conference, right? I mean, I was looking at my remarks uh, like a few months ago, um, I th uh, and and like I had a remark uh, along the lines, well, what what will we have needed to do 20 years from now? I'm like, I was looking, it's like, oh my God, we're almost <laughs> at 20 years. I have only five years left to do so many things. Yeah. <laughs> But there's so so I, I'm going to take one more digression because there's one thing that I learned. So so during COVID, some like Denmark is so small that they they needed everyone. So like I, even this even this guy, we're going to call him. So they called me in to kind of help with the official um, modeling. And one of the things I realized is that there was a kind of luxury 
to the, let's say, data explorer that's not typically available to the, like, a, a, the run-of-the-mill epidemiologist and also not to the run-of-the-mill social scientist. And, and so I want to get your take on this observation. So basically, if you work in social science, your work is often hypothesis or theory-driven in the sense that you you're aware of, like, some people have had this idea and now you want to go check, is this actually the case out in the world, right? In the case of COVID is like, well, we want to know like how many people are going to be sick and what if we make these changes, how, how is it going to impact the, the spread of the epidemic? And so what I learned in the spread of the epidemic is that now I don't get this luxury that I have usually, which is like I take a data set and then I look around for like a, a problem that I can solve really well given the data set. So and I think this is kind of like the physicist thing is that I look around, I get, someone gives me a data set and I poke around and I go like, wait a minute, there's something here that's really interesting and what's going on? And then I can explore it and I can like, wait a minute, now let me frame it as a question. And I'll say like, okay, blah, blah, blah. And then I get a question and then I can answer it in a very, very convincing way. But no, yeah. like, but until I found it, no one had necessarily <laughs> cared about the question, right? Like maybe I can link it to something or whatever. Yeah. But during COVID, I realized, well, wait a minute, like I can't look for cute COVID questions to answer. Like no one gives a shit of like that there was something yeah. in here. Like they want to know about what happens. And I think that's also true in social science. And so there is this kind of in physics, this idea of exploring the world, or exploring the data that uh, you can now move over to, let's say, like the world of data that you can actually, instead of going in and saying, like, I'm interested in this, I can actually look in the data and look for effects and then begin to dig into those. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. that is a that is a way in which computational social science doesn't have to be good social science because it's actually doing something that's quite different, but still interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, there is... I mean, there's a question of what, there's an interesting question of what good social science is, period, right? I mean, like, sure, yeah, yeah. Is, I mean, I, was uh, even, like, I don't even need to get into that. I'm, I'm just interested yeah. in these two modes of working, not so much about the, it was just like acute connection. It's not, but yeah, well, I mean, there's a question of like where, when we begin with hammers and when we begin with nails in a way, like where, when we begin with like, we have some, some, great tools and there must be something that we can do stuff with it, whether tools meaning data or analytic possibilities versus like we have, we begin with certain questions and then we structure whatever we can around the question. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the social sciences have always, you know, there are lots of, you know, examples where you we say, well, you know, we, we find these interesting empirical patterns um, and, you know, sometimes then you, you know, we, I mean, social science papers are indeed most, science papers are written around like, well, we begin with the premise and a set of questions and well, the data are perfectly structured around this and so on. And of course, we know a lot of the times that you, um, you know, you end up with exploring the data, having certain findings and then retrofitting uh, the questions. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes it's not great because you're sort of, um, you know, doing things like p-hacking or whatever and 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 making it look like you had these strong priors and that makes the results a lot more convincing. And instead, it's really just like, well, we ran, you know, 2000 ways of doing this and we found one that was yeah. interesting that is like not, not at all robust. Um, but I think that, um, I, I think that, Really, all science sort of proceeds in in a sort of cycle of around. Well, you discover, you know, you discover 
interesting patterns like the planet you know uh, planets the data collected and you know planets and and uh time and you know you know and and we you know discover you know we discover that you know this all relates to gravity and so on but like we didn't have the theory but we discover the empirical regularities um and i think that all all science sort of has that sort of that dialectic between uh, interesting uh, findings that you stumble upon theory which then directs a- exploration um in in a more focused way um and um and i think that in, in a way for those for those who come outside of the social sciences it it does tend to be more of the inductive exploratory element because you know you're starting with fewer theories um about yeah. Uh, yeah. uh social phenomena and i think that's you know i think that's uh productive and constructive most of the time and every once in a while it's sort of like i discovered a sort of you know this weird uh, oscillation of people getting together and oh it's a 24-hour cycle and i've discovered the week and so on and so like that's that you know there is a there is a potential naivete sometimes and other times uh, it's quite extraordinary um and uh, but like i think that's that's part of where we've moved as a community is like um is 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 still doing both but like at least at least having some synthesis involving sort of the inductive more computational side as well as the more sort of theory driven prior social science theory driven approach and i think that's that's in some ways where where we've moved as a community um and i think that's a good thing yeah no no absolutely i think this is i think this is a a kind of very good answer and and I mean, I guess I, like my only minor like comment to this is that like sometimes the social sciences, for example, economics or political science have a kind of service function to, let's say, a government or something like this that you're doing input. And then again, like you're locked in with having to answer the question that someone wants answered, given whatever's around rather than looking for the, you know, like the interesting thing right and and i guess maybe it's just that i saw this more or something yeah i mean the good news there is you know governments very rarely come knocking on the door most social scientists economists sure uh but other social scientists not so much that said disciplines are very conservative um and um and you know the the you know the 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 old joke about you know how many professors does it take to change a light bulb um and the answer is uh change um that you know <laughs> i didn't know that, this one uh yeah. it's a good one <laughs> and you know academia is sort of like we have established ways of doing things certain ranges of questions and and so on and so i do think that you know it's been a journey to get some of these approaches and methods and data um accepted um within the social sciences and then you know i'm sure on the let's say physics side um i certainly Get the sense of sometimes grumbling like is this kind of stuff really physics or not uh and i'm sure yeah. that you know in the nobel committees they're like well should we really give a a nobel in network science or whatever because you know is that should we consider that physics or uh um um or not um and so um and so you know institutions tend tend to crystallize and preserve um, the status quo in certain kinds of ways. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's certainly been a challenge for computational social science. And, you know, in another world, there would be fewer obstacles. Uh, but, you know, there are obstacles, but I also think that, 
you know, the thing, fortunately, you know, things change, fields do evolve. I, I look at junior scholars in the social sciences and it's just amazing to me. And when you go to like IC2S2 where we, 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 um, the, we did the politics and computational social science um, uh, conference um, uh, or, or um, like the, like the political network conference that I started some years ago. And like the last time, the last time we had it in person, which was a few years ago, but I think there was, there were just two of us at the conference out of like 150 people who are older than 50. Yeah. Um, I wish there were a few more. Uh, I mean, like, I'd rather not feel quite so old. Like, I, I, I don't think I'm that old, but like, you know, then I go to a conference <laughs> like that. I'm like, I'm, I'm ancient. Uh, but like, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's where change occurs uh, typically is like, but, you know, I'm part of the question for senior people's like, please, let's, let's not squelch the, the enthusiasm and the intellectual energy here uh, at the junior level. But like, you know, the, it's really like this, this inverse pyramid well no it's not inverse it's a sort of pyramidal structure of 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 seniority and i, I think that's that indicates that you know it's the future uh um you know because i think that people entering just see well that's where i can make my mark just like let's say 15 17 years ago when i was looking at this stuff i'm like well that's that's where i can make my mark this is what i yeah. um, you know there's something really novel here and it's like you know what we're still very early in the process yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and um, uh, like I said, I was around for kind of the excitement, but I also, at the same time, I remember going to the Rutgers Statmec uh, conference, which is kind of like a very storied, famous physics conference that I had heard about, you know, like during my education. And I, and I, it was exactly, there's a lot of chalk dust and a lot of, you know, like there, it really was the inverse pyramid, right? That yeah. a lot of the people that were there were legends, but they were kind of, they they were they 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 were they were not supported by kind of corresponding uh young people right and so so that's i mean yeah that's <laughs> that's how the change slowly but surely happens right but david this this podcast is called too lazy to read the paper <laughs> i i'm so sorry so so we've we've spoken already for a long time but maybe can we just do it super quick just so sure. just to stay within the um just within the format, I think this like this conversation is is what people uh, want to hear. At least it's what I wanted to ask. And thanks for for answering those. But but you wrote a paper, which you described and it said that it's one of your favorite papers. It's in the Journal of the Royal Royal Society Interface and is called Product Diffusion Through On Demand Information Seeking Behavior. And uh, I can see from some of the collaborators that it's some really interesting experiments. So maybe uh, do you want to just quickly set it up? Sure. Um, so this was uh, this was a marketing experiment um, that we did years ago uh, with um, with a, a company, uh, a Telenor, um, that um, to see how things spread. Right. Like obviously, um, telecoms have a certain kind of network data. They know who who communicates with whom, um, and they have new products sometimes and we talk to them and say, well there's an opportunity here to understand how things spread if you just disseminate sprinkle these codes um, um and watch how they spread and so we we the setup of this and there, there's more to it than this actually but we were we were trying to understand thinking about the role of redundancy and spreading so complex contagion and so on so we we, we had an experiment in there that we're actually still uh 
trying to get a paper. Well, and I think we have a actually very nice draft paper out of this, but like we, we discovered some problems first and that we, this first paper is on the problems. Um, so we circulate, we circulated basically 70,000 of these unique codes, which entitled people to um, a certain amount of free data for, for, um, for their yeah. uh, smartphones. And the thing about these codes is that they could be shared and reused uh, an unlimited number of times by other people as each person could use them once. Um, and each code was unique. So even though they were functionally identical, they gave you a certain number of megabytes of free data um, that you could use one code or another code and you could use it one time, one code, and and that's, that was it. And so in a sense, when we released these 70,000 uh, codes, they were like, they were like, little infections spreading through yeah. the network um, and we could watch how they spread. And we were thinking, what a great way to study how things spread in social networks. Right. And there were these sort of like competing things spreading um, and we could track because they had, but in what sense are they? And I, and I just kind of, I just want to say, I love this experiment. I've thought a lot about how to measure complex contagion and it's hard to come up with a good experimental paradigm. And this is really nice because you have this kind of, thing that you're you're working in a population if i'm not mistaken where where more data for free actually matters especially yeah. at that time and then you have this idea of these codes where you can track who uses them and and there is a, like a system to it but how how are they competing aren't they well because you, because they could you could only adopt one code so mm -hmm. if you had code a and you said you can also use free code b as well so they were they were effectively competing because you can oh, only the codes be infected once. Yes, yes the codes are competing. Yes, so you can only be infected fit. one of the codes. So. Yeah, so the most fit code will be used by the most people, basically. That's right, like, but they were they're, 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 like they're, they don't have different fitness, but but like uh, uh, that lands in the most interesting neighbor network neighborhood. That's right. That's right. So the 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 the, the neat thing was that they had identical properties right so it's all for the same amount of data so it's not like we were varying anything intrinsic about the code um and um and so and our thought at, at the time was that we could watch all these things spreading um to some extent they were competing but initially not so much because they wouldn't even be bumping into each other and that we and we did some clustering of some of the codes to see if if having multiple codes around you uh would um would clustering improve spread um as compared to like single codes dropped in places and so that was our that was our idea is that redundancy might be helpful to spreading which was counter to the um canonical idea at the time now how big, idea, how big was the overall network? So, so you had seventy thousand codes. It was many tens of millions. All right, so huge. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. So, like a country scale experiment. I mean, I think pretty harmless in the sense that people were getting something um, uh, uh, given to them if they wanted it, and there was no obligation to do anything more. And so. Um, and so, um, you know, the clustering element, like I said, that turned out to be second of secondary interest, although actually actually interesting. But like there is just mainly a local phenomenon. It's about not about the bigger cascades, but really what happens very locally. That is if you two of your neighbors 
are targeted, are you more likely to adopt than if just one of your neighbors? Are you more than twice as likely? That kind of thing. Um, and that's what we're still looking at in a paper right now, which turns out to be a tricky uh, inferential issue. But then it turned out that, you know, um, on on the way to the forum, something interesting happened. Um, yes. That, um, uh, that uh, and, and so, okay, and we write it out very differently from the reality of what actually happened. Um, so when when Telenor came back to us, they said, well, the good news here is that the codes spread like gangbusters. So like you started out at 70,000, uh, it spread to almost a million people, and we have to shut the experiment down after two weeks. Like, all right, great. So um, that's, that's terrific. Um, and then they said, well, so, you know, how, you know, there's some intriguing patterns or, you know, patterns that we might not have expected. Pick me, pick me, pick me. <laughs> so, 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 so here's the question I'll ask you, you know, of course you, you know. I haven't read it. I haven't read it, but so I might be totally off here, but my guess is maybe some back channel, some back channel yeah. stuff. Yeah. So that was, depends on what you, what do you mean by back channel? Like basically you start a web page and you just put the codes on the web page. Yeah. So that that very good. So like, so rather than like, so so so, but like that turns out to be the interpretation. But like what we saw empirically was that the spread was linear. It was the same number of adoptions day after day after day after day after day. Yeah, it wasn't as shaped, which is sort of like what we were expecting. Or, you know, if if it was subcritical, then you know it would have been like you know sublinear. So it could have been as shaped, or it could have been just the takeoff point, or it could be that it was Got spreading, it. dying out. So there, there's a certain set of ways that if it was just spreading virally, there's a certain number of shapes that you might have expected. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, we got a linear pattern, same number day after day. They were in diurnal patterns, so it was bumpy over a 24-hour period, but pretty much the same number of adoptions day after day. And when I presented this to social network crowds, I'm like, what do you expect? Um, do you expect, you know, an S shape or do you expect this, this curve or do you expect a linear curve? And like, nobody ever raises their hand for linear. Right? No, no. Uh, like I, I would for sure say S if I hadn't like, like you had alerted me to something where was going on. That's um, right. And then furthermore, and this also fits with what you're hypothesizing is that, um, is that of the 78,000 codes that were um, circulated, one of the codes accounted for 80% of all adoptions and another three or so accounted for like another 14% and then nothing else had more than, you know, more than a few hundred. But what, what I love about this is that, so, so it kind of wrecked your initial experiment or it complicated yeah. your initial experiment, but actually it's as you like, a, you have a paper about it, but it, the observing how this, manifest on the network is still super interesting yes yes because of course there were i mean there are a couple of different things one is that there were some that didn't explode like but there were still like thousands uh of codes adopted that weren't in the that weren't giant and so what you did see was that those were spreading among in the network so you could see that they were spreading with people who are connected to each other within geographic areas. So like you, you give it to this person in, in, in this city and it spreads locally among people who know each other. Yeah. But then for the giant ones, it turns out that, except for like the first few minutes, 
it went from a phase transition. It's like, oh, it's spreading locally. And then, bam, it's spreading everywhere in the country. Yes. And what happened, and, and this all happened within the first 30 or 40 minutes of the codes being disseminated. Um, so literally what happened was that, you know, and we looked for all the big ones that they were posted somewhere online. So there are the, turned out that there are, just like in the U.S., I don't know elsewhere, uh, some countries this is um, normal. In other countries, when I talk to some Europeans, they're like, well, discount codes? What are those? Um, uh, I don't know, in Denmark, if you search, you know, the first thing you do is you in the U.S., you search for a discount code for X to see if you can find a discount code. And there turn out to be these websites that service this. Um, but like, I think culturally, some places that happens someplace it doesn't. In this particular country, it happened. Um, but then the other element to it is like, why is it linear? Like just because it, it, it pops up on a website, like why would it be linear? And we realized that this is almost surely because of search, that people are searching for discount codes. And that, that there's that background nature of like searching for stuff um, that pulls people to those websites. Indeed, that's part of the reason why these websites exist is that they they get a lot of traffic because of yeah. Google. <laughs> and what this tells us is that that Google, for example, and other search functionality, and, and this should, in some ways this is both shocking and not, fundamentally changes how things spread. So like the person who gets that code suddenly can spread it to anyone in the world. And it's not because they have it's not because they're famous or they're they're have this capacity to broadcast it. It's because Google enables people to find those needles in a haystack. And if it's a great needle, people are going to find it, you know, mm-hmm. where you put it. And so, um, and so, as a result, you also have these websites that make it very easy to post. Um, and um, and so, and of course, once you have a Google, it also means that there's a Google ranking, and that if even if multiple codes are posted that some are going to be number one in the list and some are going to be number two, and that's much better to be number one. <coughs> and so, um, and so what we, um, um, so what we find is really a diffusion process that is driven by people actively searching for information and then by a technology that, um, that um, rapidly, very quickly within minutes indexes that information to make it easy to find. Yes. All right. So, I I definitely did not think discount codes. And I exactly, when I said this is a brilliant study design, I also didn't think about this issue. And part of it is because I exactly thought, I had not thought about this, like discount code websites. And I was like, how, how are you going to kind of like put it in the support pages of the telco? Or do you know, like, how are you exactly going to, to find this discount code? And and so I guess my my question is what the like how so so like so so how did people become aware even to search for this? That's like the part I don't get. Well, this is where sort of things like cultural norms matter. Um if you're if you're in a place where the norm is not to search for this stuff, then you know, then no one would no one would think of posting it. No one would think of searching for it, and it wouldn't spread. But this apparently was a setting where, like, crowdsourcing and posting things, because these these websites 
are places where you can, which crowdsource this. And so people can post um, post codes, discount codes, and then other people either go to the websites or they search and then end up at the websites. And again, this is very common in the U.S. It is not so common else in certain other countries. And so again, it's not just that what's technologically possible, but it's what culturally has emerged in the array of expectations for people to do, which was both posting and then searching uh, for this content. But yeah, sure, but uh, but I mean, like, so, so let's say I'm buying a pair of shoes. I see yeah. that there's a discount code at the store, and then I go and say, "Hey, discount code for like uh, the local sporting goods, whatever." And then I search and I find it. But I need first to kind of realize that I need the shoes. And so what I'm saying is, how do oh, yes, you yes, even yes. know that there was a promotion to search for? Got so it. I'm worrying, like I'm thinking, like are the people that you initially seeded? Did they then go search for it or is it happening elsewhere in the neighborhood or like what's the diffusion process of knowing about the promotion to begin with? Do you know what I mean? Yes, I think I think that, you you know, there is just a hope, right, that that if it's if it happens often enough that you search for is like I'm about to buy X. Right. This probably this was a lot of this was people who are like, well, you know, I I need some data. Let me see if I can get it for free or yeah. if there's a discount for it. Um, and if there's a reasonable, if you do that often enough, like to oftentimes when I buy something online, I'm, I I often search for discount codes uh, because I think, well, there may be a, you know, especially, especially, I mean, it's, it's sometimes when you buy something, it says even there's a little box discount code, which gives a hint. Oh, maybe there's discount codes. Not, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, well, probably in this case, probably in some ways. That you can you you probably the this was a thing that this uh, that that the company had done before, uh, because there must have been a place to type in the alphanumeric sequence where they asked for. Do you have a discount code? What is it? Of course, that spurs search for a discount code. Um, so there's a way in which the moment that you see that, and of course, I certainly when I buy stuff and I see something that says discount code, I'm like, hmm, um, there must be a discount code. Let me see if I can find it. What was the mechanism, like the intended mechanism? Was it that I would be, hey, I I, I got this cool promotion. And if you want, I can give you my code or like what that was it like a word of mouth kind of thing? Yeah. So the the initial thought of the experiment was that this was going to be sort of a a a sort of push kind of social network thing where you discover something great and you let your friends know. Hey, there's a great sale down at X, right? Or you want free data? Um, you know, I know, I know, I use it, and you're like, I know what you do, so I know enough that you might want to use it. So, you know, there are different ways that things can spread. Um, no one can observe you using a data plan, right? Like, like they yeah. see you in, in the sense they don't a data discount. Um, yeah. But the the thought of the mechanism was that you that. Um, it's just like sometimes you hear about a great job and you tell a friend you should apply for this. It'll be a, a great position for you that there are things that you push out in your social networks because you think it's going to be great for your friends. And yeah. so the thought behind the mechanism initially was that this was this was going to get pushed out in social networks as a thing that you thought your friends would want to use and that, you know, you value your friend's well-being or, you know, w there'll be a quid pro quo when they find something down the road that they'll share it with you, um, that um, that that was the thought behind the mechanism. Um, and and 
I think some of that happened. Certainly, that some of that did happen because we did observe these small trees. It's just that that was not the dominant thing that happened. That was that was that was like five percent of the spreading was probably viral or interpersonal pushing, um, yep. and ninety-five percent was through this on-demand mechanism where where these codes were posted and other people searched for them. But this is super useful information, nevertheless. I mean, first of all, it's a super interesting phenomenon. And it's it's useful for the company still to know. And like they should put a little hash function in there, you know, like so that every time you hand it over, it's a new one. And yes. then you wear them out or something like this, right? I mean, like if you wanted to do this a through a true viral experiment, like I thought, well, boy, if we could have done this, so it would have been harder to engineer, would have been you share the code, but as you say, it's then hashed, um, uh, meaning transformed into a new unique code. And each unique code could be used once, but then you could share it and it would be transformed. So it could only spread virally, right? Yeah. So there are de definitely ways we could have designed this in retrospect where it could only have been viral. Um, and in this case, there's an interesting question, did the company benefit or not because maybe they ended up giving away stuff that people would have bought or maybe people bought it because they searched and they're like oh for free i'll get in and uh, and or this company is giving it away and another company isn't so i'll go with them and then maybe who knows maybe they were retained or not like that's downstream and we didn't we didn't look at who who kept their data plan plans uh, down the road, um, but uh, but you know the, it, it, the neat thing here is that it this is a a pathway of diffusion that just wouldn't have existed 20 years ago. And not only that, but what we could see from the viral spreading was that it was sort of subcritical. All these would have been yeah. these would have been narrow, deep trees that all would have died out. It wouldn't have spread that much. Um, and and this instead, just because you you because of the nature of the internet, was something that could spread. And would have eventually saturated the population in a way that would not have been possible a generation ago, right? That there yeah. wasn't sort of that kind of crowdsourcing search kind of of on-demand mechanism. And so this was something that literally could not have spread in that in, in 20 years ago that would spread today. Um, and it also gets at the critical role of like things like indexing um, by search engines and how search engines allow you to find stuff, some stuff and not other stuff. Um, uh, discount codes have very obvious words you'd use, but other words uh, would be um, other concepts might be harder to spread. And what happens as search engines become more complex and more linguistically informed, might they might more things spread uh, through on demand? And and it also gets at the notion of active search as being a mechanism yes. for spread. So I think it it really. It, it's it's one of my favorite papers because it, it shocked me or surprised me in a way that reflected my own capture by like thinking of networks as the paradigm through which yeah. things spread. Uh, but also because actually this turns out to be a really important way that things spread um, in in the contemporary world. Uh, and ironically, despite all the fact that I think it's like a huge deal, transformational, etc., nobody's noticed the paper. It's been cited I think five times. Yeah. Um, uh, barely been noticed, uh, but uh, you know sometimes there are, you know, there are papers that in part we're saying you know it's not really about the network, and you know that's somehow counter programming that hasn't resonated. Um, but I actually think it's pretty important. No, no, absolutely, and I think it is exactly maybe not taking off because it's subverting people's expectations. Right? Yeah. It's like you're going and you're saying, okay, give me the skinny on the complex contagion or whatever, and they go, well, actually. 
we discover yes. a new thing and you're like, no, 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 I don't want to hear the new thing. Like, do you know what I mean? So, so yes. it's Let well, me- it's both, you know, you could have two reactions. One is, well, it's sort of obvious Google, Google exists and people find stuff through Google. I'm like, no, things are spreading. They're diffusing through this distinct mechanism that, um, that, um, that turns out to be overwhelmingly important, but like it is an array of things. It's not just that Google, it's like people use Google in a certain way, but then also po- people post things. And so there's a whole set of social behaviors that are arranged around the technology that has been cultivated in some contexts and not other contexts. And that has pretty profound implications for how things spread. But like, you're right that it is, it is not resonating with it's subversive in a way that, um, that, um, that doesn't, it didn't fit my, it literally took me an embarrassingly long time. It took us an embarrassingly long time to figure out what the heck was going on. Uh, because I mean, indeed, I, I went back to the Telenor folks and said, I think, I think you made a mistake with the data. <laughs> um, this can't be right. Uh, like, uh, no, it was my own, my, it was my own paradigm that was wrong. So, yes. And it is delightful when that happens, I think, to, to kind of be surprised in a, in that kind of deep way that you describe. Let me try and wrap my head around. So this linear growth, is that simply because there is a fixed number of people every day doing this kind of search? Is that what explains it? Or is there like something else that I'm not, do you know what I mean? Because the linear thing is also kind of wild. And like you said, whatever you think is not, um, yeah. So I think the the the, the notion of the linear, th- the, the linear factor is that there's really nothing um that should make one day different from the next in terms of what what problems people are searching for um you can imagine maybe there'd be weekly effects we didn't see anything significant like the weekends being different from weekdays and so on but generally um you know uh people's problems one day are roughly the same as their problems the next day and the set questions they have one day are the same as they have the next day and so that's why you would expect the background rate to be roughly constant. Now, you can imagine background things might change it. Like if there's a big marketing campaign, people are like, oh, I could use that. Um, But like, you know, usually big marketing campaigns don't start one day and stop the next and so on. So, you know, most things in life are like they stay the same one day as the next. Uh, And that's why that's why you get the linearity as compared to like interpersonal diffusion where we think exponential growth um, Mm -hmm. and why things should change a lot uh, day to day. Uh, But in this case, like I said, it was it was eerie how similar it was day to day. Super cool. All right, David, you have spent a long time with us here today at Too Lazy to Read the Paper. (laughs) I think it has been amazing. I I was really happy that you took the time to take this discussion. Do you have anything that I, I forgot to ask or say or anything like that? No, this was this was terrific, uh, Sune, and I want to say yours is one of the bridges I've enjoyed building across the disciplines and the fields uh, over the years. Um, so it's really special to come circle around to to discuss this uh, with you. Yeah, me too. It's it's been great, and I look forward to many more conversations. Thank you so much, David. Okay, bye, Sune. Really great. Bye. produced and edited by me. It's partially funded by the Wilhelm Foundation and the Technical University of Denmark. The awesome music is by Waylon Thornton, and it can be found at the Free Music Archive. 
At least that's where I found it. And there's also a little bit of music by me. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>